Welcome to the podcast, Spam 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 Humbug, Episode 7. You've actually just got me with Stan the Fury Dragon tonight. Um, okay, so here's the thing. I work in a particular career field that requires the occasional bit of on-call work. And I don't normally mind that, but it did um, partially get in the way on Friday evening, uh, just before the weekend, when we got together to do our weekly recording session. Um, Linguistic Dragon had signed on, we were just about to start, I was literally just about to press record when my phone rang, not my home phone, my work phone. And, um, you know, it was uh, people at the office at the control center, they had an issue, uh, or they wanted to alert me to an issue, which then I had to uh, deal with, with one of our service providers. And simultaneous to that, the baby woke up. So, uh, after a couple minutes deliberation, I just decided, you know what, we'll, we'll axe the podcast, I'll solo episode 7, and then we'll pick back up with episode 8 and talk about the thing we were going to talk about. <clears throat> with that in mind, want to actually uh, leap right into the topic, because I'm going to actually make an effort to watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. tonight, and that'll start here in a little bit. Um... You've probably heard me talk before, probably heard me talk uh, a fair bit before, uh, not just on the podcast, but on the Codex proper, about a particular game called Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning, which was released in 2012, if memory serves. Um, it was basically the last game put out by the first incarnation of Big Huge Games. Now, Big Huge Games has actually since been reformed, uh, I believe, by one of the former founders, but their only current title is called Dominations, and it's a mobile title, kind of in that, um, ah, sort of like, the, I think, the Clash of Clans motif. I haven't really messed with it too, too much. It's got elements of Civ as well, um, and it harkens back to some of Big Huge Games' earlier stuff, you know, this idea of um, you you evolve your, you know, you start out as your race, and you evolve your people from the Stone Age to the Space Age is something that they explored in one of their strategy titles, the title of which eludes me. Anyways... <clears throat> Um, they don't own the Reckoning IP, that's still the property of the state of Rhode Island, and will be for the foreseeable future, because, you know, no one wants to buy it, uh, mostly because it's bound up, and well, I mean, it's, <clears throat> it's older tech, it's, you know, another team's material, it's very hard to pick up and run with that, I don't think we'll ever see anything else set in the world of Amalur. The other reason I want to talk about this, or why it's fresh in my mind, is because uh, I was actually just finishing up my Reckoning review for... Felipe Pepe's um, CRPG handbook. Uh, I've done two reviews for that already, Ultima 6 and Ultima 9, um, but I took Reckoning as well, because it's a game that I feel rather passionate about. Why do I feel passionate about Reckoning? It's a... Isn't it just a, a boring action RPG? Well, no. Um... <clears throat> First off, you know, to get it out of the way, just saying, the great tragedy of Reckoning uh, is that it really, it demands a sequel. It requires a sequel, and it'll never have one. Um, 
and we'll get to the reason why in, in a little bit. Uh, it, it has a lot to do with some of the philosophy behind the game, some of the philosophical ideas that animate the game's plot, which didn't necessarily get the treatment they deserved over the course of the game and, you know, should have really been explored more in a sequel. The setting of Reckoning, though, can't proceed without mentioning the setting of Reckoning, the world of Amalur. You have to understand that within the lore of the game, and there's like about 10,000 years, I guess, of lore that was, your backstory that was written by R.A. Salvatore, <clears throat> the setting of Reckoning, it's a wholly deterministic world. Anything and everything and everyone in it is entirely beholden to a, a predestined fate. This fate can sometimes be foretold, uh, in whole or in part, by the fate weavers of the land, the characters that you'll meet as you progress through the game, but it can never be altered. And it's into this world that the player character is resurrected, having been killed just prior to the beginning of the game, another casualty of the long-raging war between the mortal races and a race of immortal fae called the Tuatha. The circumstances of the player's death and resurrection, though, have resulted in something unique, a being who has been broken free of the bonds of fate, or the weave of fate, as they uh, call it within the game. So you, you, the player character, you alone are no longer beholden to a fixed destiny. You don't have a fate. And you're called the fateless one uh, as you progress through the game. Now, this idea of being, you know, a, a fateless being in the midst of a fate-governed world, it's an intriguing concept, and like I mentioned before, Reckoning doesn't really explore it to its fullest potential. There are certainly moments where it shines through. Um, the storytelling is often at its very best in these moments, especially in these times where the player's mere presence seems to disrupt the weave of fate and alters the destinies of, of individuals, of groups, uh, even of entire races. <clears throat> Much, though not all of this, occurs in the game's side quests, especially the various house quests. Um, the House of Ballads, for example, quest illustrates it very obviously, wherein, you know, you have this <clears throat> house of fae. Uh, they're kind of like elves, I guess, is another term for elves, although it actually, fae is a bit of a broader term. They're, they're like... The, the highest form of the fae are these elf-like beings, and they're immortal. And then, but there are other forms of fae, uh, the sprites and uh, other such creatures that you encounter. They're kind of lower forms, and often they're enemies, actually, within the game. Anyways, <clears throat> uh, within the House of Ballads quest, your, your character kind of just wanders into the middle of it. And the thing about the House of Ballads is <clears throat> the players all it's kind of it's set it's set in the idea of a play and you know all of the fae that are members of the house of ballads are basically acting out parts in this eternal play that repeats again and again and again and each time they take on different roles it's kind of neat i mean that that is you know their history is it's literally a lived history uh But merely by you coming into contact with the House of Ballads and some of its people, you disrupt that. And so, you know, one of the balladeers, uh, for lack of a better term, there's no term given in the game, 
decides, you know, I'm not happy being the loser in this story this time around. I, I want to do it differently. And he's able to. And then it's up to you to um, <clears throat> put that right. And even then, as you put it right, you don't necessarily restore the flow of the history of the House of Ballads. You don't rebind these people to their fate. You know, like they are left inexorably and forever altered by your passing. And so too, there's moments in the main plot where, you know, this shines out. You'll be questing along with a character, and this monster comes bounding around the corner, and the other character just freezes up. He's like, this is it. Like, this is my fate. I, I saw this. This is where I die. And then you killed the monster, and he's left standing there like, okay, now what? <clears throat> But from what I understand, and I mean, this is like anecdotal and hearsay and based on my shoddy memory, from what I understand, um, Reckoning shifted designers partway through production and the first designer, lead designer, didn't particularly care to explore this, you know, the philosophical ramifications of the world they had set up and the character they had introduced into it. Whereas the lead designer that saw the game through to completion, um, whom Ultima fans will know as Tibby, Ian Fraser, tried to. He tried to, you know, put more of that into the plot because it's a really cool idea. So you, you kind of get um, you kind of get the situation where, you know, a lot, especially in the first half, two thirds of the game, some of the best explorations of this philosophy occur within the side quests. And then as you get towards the end of the game, uh, as the final act begins, the main plot really finds its stride. And so you get a lot of that same philosophically charged um, story as part of this action-packed rush right up to the final confrontation. And like I say, Reckoning 2, from what I've heard, would have uh, explored the concepts of fate and destiny in greater detail. So it's really quite unfortunate that never got made. Now, coming back to the world of Reckoning, as it's built in the game, it's not a truly open world. It's divided into a bunch of large areas. Um, an analog would be like Dragon Age Inquisition, or actually how a lot of MMOs would handle it. And keep that thought in mind. Each area is itself massive, uh, boasts a different biome, different artistic styles, different trees and, you know, rock types and rock formations. Um, and where some other fantasy RPGs of that era, Skyrim most notably, uh, you know, emphasized a more muted color palette. I mean, Skyrim is basically gray on gray. Uh, <laughs> Reckoning is, is rich. I mean, it opts for saturated colors. Um, and part of the joy of exploring the world is just how staggeringly beautiful so much of it is. You know, you just, you, you wander around a corner and it's just one gloriously beautiful scene after another. The, the artistry that went into crafting Amalur is amazing. Um, beautiful, like I say, just, you know, the, the rock formations that give way to waterfalls, that yield to lush forests and to, um, <clears throat> you know, barren deserts, but which have obviously taken, you know, design cues from, from Moab and some of the other absolutely beautiful um, desertscapes that, you know, can be seen in, in the U.S. and in, around the world and other places, too. Um, <clears throat> the, the, the talent 
of the world builders at big huge games is 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 fully on display and it's just it's a joy just to wander through Amalur and see what beautiful thing is lurking around the next bend in the road uh, the world is also heavily influenced by Celtic mythology. Uh, much of the voice acting actually reflects this. You get a lot of, you know, the Irish, the Gaelic accents, um, which too is kind of a welcome departure from the more Nordic-influenced motifs on display in some other games in the genre. Skyrim again, even Torchlight feels a little bit Nordic to me. I mean, it's <clears throat> kind of an apples and oranges comparison, but just, you know, work with me on this one. <sighs> Coming back to that idea of an MMO, in some respects you can almost think of Reckoning as a single-player MMORPG. The game is really, really methodically laid out, and there's numerous narratively rich side quests to be found, in addition to the main story, which you know sort of builds over time and gets stronger as you progress. There's also plenty of fetch quests, monster-killing missions, uh, you know, there are a lot of filler NPCs, um, some of the NPCs are lightly scheduled, but, you know, it, it's not a fully scheduled world by any means. Shops are open 24 hours. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the regions of Amalur do kind of correspond technically and, you know, from a design philosophy standpoint to, to zones in an MMO. Um, but still, you know, I mean, they're, they're huge. And there's lots of room to explore. There's lots of people to meet and talk to. Lots of monsters to get into fights with. Um, there's a rich crafting system. It's very well implemented. Um, very, you know, straightforward to use, like blacksmithing, for example. Um, and, you know, actually, there is some benefit. Up until about the last third of the game, there is actually some benefit to, you know, taking time to craft your own weapons, craft your own... Or actually, when I played it through, I ended the game with a weapon that I had crafted for myself. Um, <clears throat> you know, I built it about midway through the game and it just continued to be my weapon all the way through because it was... <laughs> it's just a good sword. Um, <clears throat> the skill trees add meaningfully to the gameplay. Um, <clears throat> you know, you, you, you unlock... I mean, yeah, you're unlocking combat moves and you're unlocking new abilities. Um, but the skill trees also build into the destinies concept, which are essentially interchangeable meta classes that can be reassigned on the fly. And the destinies add this really interesting strategic element to how you manage your character because, you know, you, you assign a, a different destiny, this different meta class to your character, and you get, you know, little perks and ability boosts or, um, <clears throat> like in some cases... Uh, like normally you hit the space bar, it's kind of a dive and roll in whatever direction you're indicating on the WAS or D keys. Some of the destinies, that turns into a blink. In at least one, it turns into what's called poison blink. So, you know, as you blink past an enemy, you also inflict poison damage on him. Um, <clears throat> other destinies, you know, give you the... Uh, give you, give you uh, like boosts to stats or um, boosts to your abilities. So, um, you know, it really becomes a very, this strategic thing, and you'll find, or at least I found, progressing through the game, that I very often shifted classes, um, or shifted destinies, rather, <clears throat> fairly often, um, as, as the situation warranted. 
And then there's the combat. <clears throat> so let's just, you know, keep the frame of thought here. Reckoning is, in most respects, it's a single-player MMO, or you can think of it as that, you know, and it's very, in a lot of ways, it's very MMO-like, um, except for the combat. The combat is, is, is anything but methodical. It's hyperkinetic, it's brutal, fast-paced, kind of tactical. Um, the key to it really is to keep moving, um, to use movement to your advantage, and also, I mean, to innovate. You can use an array of weapons and abilities. Um, some of the weapons are ludicrously overpowered, the chakrams in particular, and some are kind of underpowered. Um, <clears throat> I played through with a sword and chakrams. And I mean, the chakrams, they're good for 80% of enemies. The swords are good for the big enemies. You get in close and just wail away at them. But anyways, you got a variety of weapons and abilities. Um, <clears throat> and you do eventually settle into particular patterns for these, but the combat bumps along enough that it rarely becomes boring. And in a certain sense, it's the combat that sort of ties the rest of the game together. The combat's tempo is so frenetic, so frantic, that it just... It allows the game to the rest of the game, the quests, the crafting, the story, to proceed at a more measured pace without feeling slow. Um, it's sort of like the opposite of the most recent X-Men movie. You know, if you think about, um, if you think about, you know, Days of Future Past. Days of Future Past has that one awesome scene with Quicksilver you know, the, the slow-mo fight scene in the kitchen where he basically, you know, takes out a dozen guards by, you know, just <laughs> making them punch themselves and whatever else. And at the same time, he's, you know, moving bullets that have been fired at his companions off of their trajectories. So, you know, mutants don't get hurt, the guards all get disabled, and they can escape. But it's that use of slow motion, hyper slow motion at that, that, you know, sort of grounds how the rest of the movie uses slow motion. And actually, much of the rest of the movie shies away from using slow motion to, um, you know, to better highlight Quicksilver. Uh, in, in many respects, Quicksilver's presence in the movie sort of defines the pace that the rest of the movie moves at. And it's very much like that in Reckoning too. The The fast-paced nature of the combat really sort of helps define the pace that the rest of the game can proceed at. And so when you're not in a fight, you actually have the opportunity to just sort of drink in the rest of Reckoning. That said, it's still a really awesome combat system, um, <clears throat> which, I mean, again, just it's very action-oriented, very um, fast-paced. But even in spite of that, it would be a mistake to just dismiss Reckoning, which... Uh, as just another 3D action RPG. Now, that isn't to say that the game doesn't... Again, it has that excellent combat system. Um, and it has a lot of combat. I mean, you will fight in this game. But whereas it could have been just another unintelligent brawler, uh, it instead delivers this fully realized and, and massive fantasy world, which really is filled to the brim with interesting lore and imaginative stories and, you know, some really great ideas that were departures from what other RPGs of its era were doing, and it was nice to see. The soundtrack uh, by Grant Kirkhope is also really, really excellent. You heard a piece of it coming into the podcast, you'll hear another piece of it as we leave the podcast. Uh, the game's worth picking up just on the soundtrack alone. 
Anyways, moving on to um, a couple of other things. Shroud of the Avatar's uh, 17th pre-alpha test release is going to start this week, so expect to see Starlong posting instructions for it more or less by the time this episode has gone live on the Codex, or maybe on the Patreon. can never remember if that's a Wednesday or a Thursday feature. The standout feature of this release will evidently be the addition of the first actual player-owned town, Paxlair, into the game. Now, Paxlayer, of course, had previously made themselves a home in Shroud of the Avatar. They more or less took over the town of Veilmark for the last dozen or so releases, rebuilding it every time Portalarium did a server or a data wipe. Uh, moreover, they built it with a combination of, you know, houses and crafted objects, dressers and such like. And some of their work therewith was really quite impressive. You know, they built forts, they built, I think, the notable Church of the Dark Star was one of their innovations, if I recall correctly. Anyways, um, the actual Paxlair city will no doubt include some of that same innovation, but at least now it'll have some static features that'll survive server wipes when and if they happen in the future. Uh, It's worth noting, too, that whereas Veilmark was located in the Hidden Veil region of the game, Paxlair proper will be located on the mainland of Novia. The Paxlair city layout will, from what I gather, be used as a template for the design of future player-owned cities as well. I mean, there were quite a lot of these purchased, and Portalarium worked with Paxlair, and in particular with Winfield, who's kind of the governor of Paxlair, on the layout and the design of the city. Um, And I mean, some of the motivation there was, you know, Paxlair has a huge history with Ultima Online. They are, if I recall correctly, the longest continuously uh, operating player community in Ultima Online. And it also helped, I suppose, that they were the first to purchase the metropolis-sized player-owned town. So that'll be neat to see. Um, definitely, you know, do pop in and, and check the place out. Uh, it'll definitely it'll be the standout and unique feature of release 17 of Shroud of the Avatar. Uh, and finally, uh, just one shout out today. Hardwire Dragon sent in a short little message to the Ultima Codex uh, last week, or I guess now a couple of weeks ago. And uh, it simply read, Thank you for running the site. It's amazing to see Ultima is still alive in the hearts and minds of its fans after all these years. You know, I couldn't agree more. The endurance of the Ultima fandom, the continued passion of its fan base, even though it's been over 15 years since the last published single-player entry, it's pretty darn awesome. And, you know, personally as well, thank you, Hardwire, for the note and the encouragement. It's sometimes difficult to run the codex. It's sometimes difficult to, you know, motivate myself to keep doing it. But feedback like that certainly helps. All right, I'm going to close this out. Uh, Always remember, if you'd like to recommend anyone for a shout-out, send an email, ultimacodex at gmail.com, which you can also use to suggest podcast topics, offer commentary or criticism, volunteer your time if you want to actually contribute to podcast sessions. There's the Ultima Dragons group on Facebook. There's the Ultima Dragons group on Google+. If you're on one of those, you should check it out. And finally, there's the Ultima Codex Patreon. Um, I'm actually going to go back and edit the other episodes, make it so that the $5 pledge level now gets you access to Spam 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 Humbug episodes the day before they go live, here and on the site. Um, Please do consider contributing, because you'll help me both maintain and with sufficient funding, expand the server infrastructure of the Codex to better deliver all the things you come looking for thereat. Have a good night. We will see you next week. Talk about what we were going to talk about. But in the meantime, be virtuous.